Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Jobs, what's the best way to create them? In Michigan and across the country, one standard approach is to give corporations money to grow their capacity to innovate and hire more people. But a growing number of progressives and conservatives don't think this is a good idea. They say too much of that money goes to CEOs and not the people. So what's the best way to create jobs here in Michigan? We'll take a look at the arguments for and against corporate subsidies next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. What's the best way to create jobs in Michigan? Here in this state and across the country, many Democrats and Republicans may have come to an agreement. Give corporations more money so they can grow their capacity to innovate and hire more people. At the national level, Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act, both of which use tax credits to get companies to invest more in developing green technology and manufacturing microchips. Corporate incentives are also a big plank of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's policy agenda and the Democratic majority in Lansing. In 2021, Whitmer signed a bipartisan bill funneling $1 billion of state funds to attract large business projects. A year later, the state legislature launched the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve Fund, allocating $1 billion in spending, mostly to fund business incentives. This year, the Michigan Strategic Fund approved $1 billion to support Ford's multi-billion dollar investment to build a battery plant in Calhoun County. Is this the best way to create high-paying jobs, though? A growing chorus of progressives and conservatives don't think so. They believe corporate tax incentives are the equivalent to giving money away to CEOs and executives. But many still think giving corporations money to make more money and hire more people is the most efficient way to grow our economy. And that leaves us with the question, are tax incentives for corporations a good idea? If you don't give it to the corporations, where should that money be placed? And what's the best way to create high-paying jobs in Michigan, what we all want in the first place? Later in the program, an economist will join us to explain the benefits of corporate tax incentives, And then we'll explore Ann Arbor's new guaranteed income program, which is meant to create more small businesses. But before we get there, we want to talk with someone who is more skeptical of corporate tax incentives. James Holman is the director of fiscal policy at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy and the host of the Overton Window podcast. He recently wrote a column for Bridge Michigan titled Michigan Must End Corporate Welfare Subsidies for Developers. James, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Well, let's get right to it. Your uh, title, your article says it right on the 10. Why are you against corporate tax incentives? Well, that one was, uh, that article was specifically meant to try to inform people about what is going on from these people asking for 
direct taxpayer subsidies for their profit-seeking enterprises. And they all read from the same script. And this applies to developer subsidies, to the SOAR program that you talked about earlier, even to film incentives. And that is, supporters say, let's multiply our benefits, as in count only the benefits and none of the costs. In fact, they, the second part of the script is to ignore the fact that these things actually cost taxpayer money. Uh, Michigan lawmakers recently, or legislators recently approved a bill to uh, subsidize developers and give them $800 million of the taxpayers' money. And the supporters argue that that, that's actually not going to cost taxpayers anything. And I look at big checks to big companies and say, no, that these people are collecting $800 million. They're, uh, that's real money and should be considered. And then the last thing they do is declare success, that uh, just by passing these laws, they're doing something that is effective and will create jobs, and that's never the case. Economists use clever methods to tease out the benefits or tease out the, uh, the effects of these programs to analyze the costs and the benefits. And sometimes they find that uh, business subsidy programs create jobs. Um, I wish I, uh, it, my job might be a little bit easier if they hadn't, but they do sometimes. Most of the time they find that these, uh, these, uh, the economic effects of these programs are negative. They are not worth the cost, but none of them find large effects. So that when lawmakers say that they're going to create jobs with these programs, that we're going to come out ahead. This is, uh, in fact, for the Ford deals, they say we have secured Michigan's economic future by handing this company a large taxpayer check. That never happens. These programs don't justify themselves. No state grows because they write the right check or write big checks to the right companies. Well, James, there are a lot of arguments in there. So let's pack this in from the beginning to make sure we're all on the same page. How would you describe what happens with corporate tax incentives? It's a a name we say a lot, but we don't necessarily always agree on what the mechanism is. What specifically are you talking about and how that works? Yeah, so uh, actually, there's uh, it's it's pretty simple uh, uh, how these things work. Uh, subsidy of, of people who get to who are likely to collect uh, favors from the government for these programs ask for favors from the government, uh, and this can come in the form of selective tax abatements, letting the company pay less in property taxes. It can uh, it can result in uh, uh, companies getting uh, forgivable loans from the government. But in the state of Michigan, the most frequent uh, uh, the most frequent form of of, of these things is a direct payment from uh, uh, from the state government. Um, Michigan awards large cash offers to companies to, to say that they're coming here. Uh, that's kind of the big things. We've, uh, lawmakers in Michigan have authorized $4.1 billion worth of business subsidies just this year alone. That's more than we're going to spend on the roads this year. Um, yeah, that's kind of how, how it works in the state of Michigan. So the plan then would be, and I think you'd be someone that says that private business is the greatest driver of work, greatest driver of jobs in the state. So the theory would be then if a corporation, if a company has more money in their pocket, if they have less to spend on their overhead and they have more to work on doing things like giving jobs and, uh, and trying to grow their profits. So please explain to me in terms of you're saying that's not what we see in this economic data. What specifically do you take uh, exception with? What do you, why do you think it doesn't work the way that they say it will well, I think you're overcomplicating a little bit. The reason why we are offering $4.1 billion worth of subsidies to, uh, to businesses is not because we think that there's some broader economic uh, uh, theory that's going to allow, allow for greater job growth if we do these things, but rather because companies asked for it and lawmakers told them yes. 
I mean, behind every one of those bills is some company that stands to benefit from uh, from these business subsidy policies. And, uh, uh, and lawmakers look at what they're asking and say, is this a good thing for me and my political uh, career if I uh, authorize these things? And for the most part, they say yes. Uh, and they say yes for an important reason. It's the same reason that we're talking about this today. Uh, they think that uh, at least it does something about jobs. Politicians at all levels, state, local, and federal, um, uh, need to sh- demonstrate that they're doing something about jobs. The problem with these subsidies is that it's all show and no substance. It doesn't lead to job growth. It doesn't justify their costs, but it does get you invited to a ribbon-cutting ceremony or a groundbreaking ceremony to show that you've done something. It drives headlines more than it drives jobs. Yeah, data. you know, all right, I understand that, James, but what you're telling me, what I'm hearing from you is basically like they're doing it for this reason, so that's no good. And even if the reason were bad, we got to look at what actually happens with the money, right? Because if the incentive was just for the ribbon-cutting, but the ribbon-cutting it actually does help for whatever reason, even if you say I'm yeah. over, overcomplicating it, does help get money back into the coffers to hire people, then it would be a good outcome, regardless of if it had bad motives, right? So, yes. So go ahead. Uh, and, and I think you're, uh, you're right about this. Um, and that's one thing that I think is underappreciated about the, uh, the discussion about these business subsidies. All of the attention is whether we're going to hand, these, hand this money out and about whether the company does and, 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 uh, and has that ribbon-cutting ceremony or groundbreaking ceremony. The question is, what happens afterwards? So we looked at all, of, uh, pretty recently, we looked at all of the biggest deals in the country. Not the, you know, we're giving a, a company uh, half a million dollars to open up, uh, to open up a small office in, in your town, but I'm talking the biggest billion-dollar deals in the country since 2005. They said that they're going to come here. It's going to be big. We're talking big companies like Boeing, the Detroit Three, oil and gas companies in in, in Louisiana. Uh, and we looked at whether they produced or whether they met their headline claims. Did they locate in the state? Did they create the jobs that they're talking about? And none of these deals, mm. and I mean none of them, not a single one of them, produced what they said. When you look at job creation and loss numbers, um, the state of Michigan by itself creates and loses more than 800,000 jobs every single year. Um, uh, we're doing better when we're adding more, and we're doing worse when, when businesses are cutting more jobs than they're creating. But these subsidy deals only deal with hundreds to thousands of jobs, simply not at the scope necessary, which is why both people on the right and the left think that the best way to improve your economy is through quality of life and business climate issues. Mm. And they can argue, they can debate over what which one of those are the best and which ones are effective. But that's why there's some broad cross-ideological opposition to these programs. They don't do what they're promised, and there's a better way to create jobs. Uh, we're going to get into that and what the best ways are in just a moment, as I am speaking with James Homan, the director of fiscal policy at the conservative Mackinac, uh, Mackinac Center for Public Policy think tank and host of the Overton Window podcast. But we also want to hear from you listening out there. What is the best way that you believe there is to create jobs in Michigan? Should we be giving corporations tax incentives to move to the state or the city of Detroit to work here and employ people? Or do you believe that there's a better way to spend state money to grow the economy? 
Should we expand public service jobs as a way of finding uh, or find more ways to f- support small business as ways of expanding our economy and job access in the state and in the city? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019, and we'll work you into the conversation. Well, James, while I have you on the line, you mentioned some ways that both progressives and conservatives believe that the money could be better spent towards wellness, towards uh, public good, towards helping out people in order to help our economy. What do you think would be the best way that the money that's in the budget already could be spent in order to help out the people and create jobs here in Michigan? I mean, it's just just a basic thing. Our roads are falling apart faster than they're being repaired. We were really close to getting to that point. That's a public benefit. People would like that. Uh, there are construction jobs in the construction industry. I think there would be a better use of our taxpayer dollars than giving them to a handful of companies. It's, uh, that's an unfair way to, uh, or sorry, that's unfair to the businesses who don't get special support. It's ineffective at creating jobs, and it's expensive to the state taxpayer. Well, if you were to create more construction jobs, if you were to put more of that money into the roads, that would obviously have the knock-on effect of creating people that needed to work on those projects, hiring, and and so forth. But is it your thought then that more businesses would be apt to come here because we had better roads, it'd be a more attractive place. Uh, What are you basing that on saying, hey, if we had better roads, it would create more jobs absent just creating more Mm -hmm. construction jobs? Yeah. So the important things about the roads is not that people work on them, but they help get people where they want to go. Yeah. Uh, And People prefer to drive on better roads. It's better for them. It's less expensive to them because uh, uh, bad roads do damage to vehicles. It it generally helps people get where they want to go. And that is an important public benefit that improves economic conditions. Um, I mean, that's what uh, that is what economic growth fundamentally is, is getting people getting more people what they want. And we want to get where we want to go. So better roads would help that. Yeah, I want to. Uh, tie something to that in just a moment. But first, I got a note from Kristen on Twitter who says, corporate welfare, no. Corporations using their profits, management bonuses, and all the tax breaks since Reaganomics times to create jobs, yes. Um, Oh, I think she's against uh, corporate welfare, as she put it there. Says it just uh, has Reaganomic effects that aren't beneficial for the people. But getting back to what you said, again, I do understand that it would help the world, it would help people, right? And they could get to their jobs. But one of the reasons I think people go for the idea of corporate subsidies is they can see a one-to-one ratio, right? I give this dollar here, it should go towards creating a job. From what I'm hearing from you, it would be, yes, if we have better roads, that would make this a better place to create business. But what I'm trying to figure out is what is that link? Do you have a study that you're pointing to? Is this just an anecdotal thing that you hear about? Is this you theorizing like, okay, we have better roads. How does that create more jobs outside of construction for people in the state? Well, let me say there is a body of research on um on the economic development programs. Uh, We actually post one of the academic reviews on on our website. Uh, It's from the Journal of American Planning Association. It's called The Failures of Economic Development Policy, which looks at what does literature have to say about these selective subsidy deals. And they, I basically summarized it for you already. They don't, sometimes they find positive effects. Most of the time they find negative effects, Uh, but all, uh, but they never find large effects. Um, so that's an important thing, because if you're talking about corporate subsidy deals, which is 
the uh, segment of the show. That's kind of what the literature says. And everyone who's trying to argue differently is, is trying to ignore that literature. With regards to road construction, I mean, I, I don't really know that you need a, a lot of uh, good roads cause uh, cause better outcomes. There is a lot of academic research on getting rid of congestion mm-hmm. causes economic benefits. Uh, there is some, uh, but I don't necessarily know that there's a lot of um, good quality road pavement uh, clearly leads to increased uh, increased job growth. But clearly, congestion costs are a huge uh, are a huge issue, and uh, there is a lot of academic research on that about how reducing congestion improves economic outcomes. Sure, sure. And again, we're speaking with James Holman here from the uh, Mackinac Policy uh, Mackinac Center for Public Policy, the think tank here, host of the Overton Window podcast as well, who recently wrote a about corporate subsidies in Bridge, Michigan. We're taking a look at them because right now there is a debate, and it's really interesting how you can find people on both sides of the spectrum, left and right, who are both for corporate subsidies and both against corporate subsidies. We're hearing from him about why he's against the idea of corporate subsidies, and we also want to hear from you whether you're for, whether you're against, or what questions you have about how they're implemented here in Michigan. 313-577-1019 is the phone number. Go ahead. Oh, guys, we want to interject uh, just just a point on this because I've been looking at the uh, uh, business subsidy debate for uh, for over 20 years now, and there's not really a lot of cross ideological debate. Like the people who are arguing for subsidies don't come from a diverse group of uh, of bipartisan supports. What you see is that the people who are arguing for more business subsidies tend to be the people who are going to get. Uh, uh, the favors from the government if, if, if our lawmakers pass these deals and the people who get to hand them out. So your economic development agencies at both the state and, lo- and, and, and the na- uh, state and local levels. It's not, uh, there's, there aren't a lot of people who are normal people who look at business subsidies and think, yeah. yes, this is exactly how we yeah. want to grow our yeah. economy. Yeah, James, are, but they're Republicans and they're also Democrats, correct? Oh, absolutely. We've got a scorecard about this. Yeah. How and, and there are people who have, who have vote voted for... Yeah, there is bipartisan Yeah, they've voted for liberal and, and progressive policies. That's all I'm saying there. And yeah. whatever the motivation is, you know, I try to not necessarily open up someone's heart and say exactly what they're saying. You know, I take them at their word unless I hear otherwise. All I'm saying is there's progressives, there's conservatives that are for it. But I get what you're saying. It's the, the driving factor, regardless of ideology, is more, can I hand out the subsidy or do I get to benefit from the subsidy? I certainly understand that as we're going to take a moment to go to the phones now and have an opportunity to make sure someone can get in here and ask you a question as we have Tim in Detroit. Tim, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Yeah, I, I recently read an article. Uh, they were talking about growth in the particular states around the country. They said Michigan is not growing. Uh, Wisconsin is growing because they use part of that uh, COVID money to subsidize small businesses. I think they use one third of it, and uh, their population is growing mm. because of that. I think we spent, at least according to the article, I may be wrong, but they say Michigan spent one percent on developing small business. I give that to you, James. I think that's a, a perfect question. I do appreciate that from you, Tim. What response do you have to him, James? Yeah, that's a good point uh, uh, that you make. I don't know that. Oh, so. Um, since COVID's happened, some states have fully recovered all of their jobs. Some states have not. Michigan has not. There are the fastest two growing states in the country are Utah and Idaho. 
And those are also the states that hand out the least amount of corporate welfare. Uh, they authorize some of the least uh, business subsidies, which I think ought to raise concerns for, for anyone that, like, if you do want to grow your economy, you should think about business, uh, uh, business climate, quality of life things, and not think that the best way to add jobs is to hand out uh, the right checks to the right people. And that's because the states that are growing the most do the yeah. least of, uh, of business subsidization. James, I appreciate you bringing that point up. I got to jump in real quick because we got to leave in just a moment. But I got to note, G- Idaho and Utah are very small. So it would seem to me that a little bit of change would have a lot of impact. Are we correcting out for the size of these populations in terms of that growth or not? Or how does that factor into uh, your analysis? Uh- my job growth things are, uh, in that case, are about percentages, not uh, not things. So, yeah, small gro- uh, small states can have uh, large percentage growth. If you're looking for a size, then it's probably Texas and Florida. Right. And they do some corporate welfare, not as much as Michigan does, but mm. they do some corporate welfare, too. We're gonna I mean, have Every state does a little bit. Sure, sure. We're going to have to end it there. But, James, I really do appreciate you coming on, making the case against corporate subsidies. It was very informative. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. When we return, we are going to hear the other argument. We're going to get an idea. We're going to talk to an economist and researcher at the Tax Foundation Center for Federal Tax Policy, Erica York, about the case for corporate subsidies as Detroit Today continues in just a moment. WDET brings you news about your neighborhood. WDET plays music from the Motor City. WDET amplifies the voices in our community. WDET is your public radio station. It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, having a conversation about corporate incentives, the arguments for and against them. And we just spoke with someone who was against corporate incentives and believes that they are wasteful spending. So now we want to hear the other side of the argument. And to help us do that, we have Erica York, a senior economist and research manager of the Tax Foundation's Center for Federal Tax Policy. She believes corporate incentives are good policy. Erica York, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Erica, we'll just ask you the simple question the opposite way. Why do you believe corporate tax incentives are good policy? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you an economist's typical answer, and I'm going to say it depends. Um, we have a, a whole range, speaking of the, the federal corporate income tax code, a whole range of, of subsidies available and different deductions corporations get to take. And I think it's really a mixed bag. I think some are structured really well, and lawmakers have, have done a good job um, making the tax system, uh, you know, encourage investment broadly. And then I think some, like the, the last caller mentioned, are, um, are your, your last guest mentioned, are, are less of a success story. And so I think it's, it's really a, a nuanced discussion, and it, it ultimately depends on, you know, the, the specific subsidy. I think the, the best thing that, that we have when it comes to encouraging investment in the tax code is what's called bonus depreciation. And that is more of a broadly available um, structural element of the tax code that says, you know, if, if a business is going to invest and in, let's say, you know, purchase a heavy truck that costs $100,000 this year, then that business gets to deduct the full cost of that truck this year. 
because we have a tax system that, that should just be taxing businesses on their profits. And so to get to that measure to actually tax those profits, you have to allow them to fully deduct that. And then if we go on down the line, um, we get away from that kind of good type of subsidy that encourages investment more broadly and get into the, the um, subsidies that they really pick winners and losers. And there, uh, Congress has less of a, a track record of success. Well, if you talk about the concern for picking winners and losers being the issue here, bonus depreciation as a subsidy, uh, then when you say you would implement that, that would go to any business, any uh, industry, no matter how successful or unsuccessful they are? Yeah. So what, what bonus depreciation does, and you know, sometimes it's, it's called a subsidy, but really, I think from, from our perspective, we would argue that that's just neutral treatment mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter, like you mentioned, what industry you're in. It doesn't matter where you're located. As long as that investment is put into place in the United States, then you deduct the cost of that investment. So that takes lawmakers out of you know the driver's seat of saying, we want this type of investment. We're going to give this investment extra. Um, you know, tax incentive. Instead, it's saying, no, we're going to allow investment across the board to be done without receiving a tax penalty. Uh, You get to fully deduct that when you make the investment. And we have research that shows that this is really one of the most cost-effective ways that lawmakers can structure the tax code in a way that it encourages uh, domestic investment. Mm, Well, that sounds like a change in tax policy, which is interesting. But in terms of what I think most people would colloquially colloquially think of as tax, uh, corporate welfare, tax incentives, picking winners and losers, as you mentioned it, then would you agree with James then, who we heard from earlier, that there actually is not a good uh, any good connection between these types of corporate subsidies and success? Or if there is, please tell me what's the best way, other than bonus depreciation or something broadly um, across the whole industry, to do uh, corporate welfare, to do corporate tax subsidies? Yeah, I think in some cases you, you may be able to find you know a, a justification for something beyond just neutral tax treatment, so something that would step into the world of, of subsidy but we don't have a lot of examples of that being done really well. Mm. Um, I would say something like the research and development tax credit that we have in the federal tax code. That goes above and beyond just allowing a business to deduct their R&D expenses and it goes into the world of you know providing an extra bonus for that type of activity. And you know the economic argument for that is to say you know there's broad benefits to R&D beyond just the business that's engaging in that activity. If they come up with some new innovation, that's going to benefit society as a whole. And so we want to be sure that the private market is doing enough of that R&D activity. It's not accidentally, um, you know, not doing enough because the benefits will, will be um, widespread and not just captured by that firm. So that's kind of like the, the economic reasoning behind it. But what we see in practice with the R&D tax credit, for example, is that it's mainly used by really large firms that have really large accounting departments that can tackle the complexity of the credit and ensure that they you know, get their expenses recorded the right way, jump through all the hoops to qualify for the credit. And so it's not mainly going to the small firms where we see a lot of innovative activity. And that's why that design element is so important that, that lawmakers, if they're trying to come up with an incentive, make it broad and simple so that people don't have to waste resources 
figuring out how to qualify for these tax benefits. Instead, they can plug their resources into that you know, economic activity we really want to see. Yeah, if you're spending money chasing how to get money, then uh, is that really benefiting the people? We want to get into the specifics of some of these subsidies with one of our callers right now, as we have Mary in Lake Orion. Mary, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Uh, Yes, I had a question. Uh, Years ago, we had the Hollywood movie industry tax subsidy. Everybody was all excited about that. Uh, Clint Eastwood made Gran Torino here, etc. Then it went away. I'm wondering, is there any value to the state in bringing it back? Yeah, dashing my dreams of being Axel Foley's child in the Beverly Hills Cop 5 movie. They did go away, but I bring that question to you right now as we take a look. Erica York, should we bring back the movie subsidies that we had in Michigan? What would you say? What do you know about how subsidies like that worked and how they work here in the state? Well, film tax credits are are a big area that the people in the tax policy world talk about a lot as one of the prime examples of things not to do with with your tax code. Mm. Um, Film tax credits tend to be quite a wasteful um, endeavor. You know, as as the caller mentioned, they may bring activity for a short period of time and then that activity dissipates. And the the real beneficiaries of the credit don't tend to be the people who are are living in those towns. It, It may you know, lead to a short-term, you know, change or quick buzz in activity. And then once production is done, that, that activity leaves. Um, so they, they really tend to be a bad policy, and we don't see them deliver on the, the promises that um, policymakers make when they, they implement them. Mary in Lake Orion, I'm really glad you brought up that old policy because I think that's something a lot of us were thinking about. So thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today, which leaves an open line for you listening out there. What is the best way to create jobs in Michigan? Should we be giving corporations tax incentives to move uh, to the state or the city of Detroit to work here and employ people? Or are there better ways for us to spend money in the state to grow our economy? Uh, Should we expand public service jobs, find more ways to support small businesses? What ideas do you have out there? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. We can work you into the conversation that way as we speak with Erica York, the Senior Economist and Research Manager of Tax Foundation Center for federal tax policy right now. You know, we've been talking a lot about tax subsidies, but some of this is also uh, taking money and spending it, giving it to corporations for certain things. You mentioned bonus depreciation, which is more of an accounting, a a tax policy. But in terms of taking cash and actually just cutting checks to businesses, as an economist, do you ever think that that uh, has a benefit that people should use? Or based on what I'm hearing from you, is that also just... Uh, not uh, a very inconsistent way of trying to effectively uh, use taxpayer funds. Yeah, that that also tends to be a pretty inefficient use. Um, you can get into a, a situation of a, an arms race of sorts, mm-hmm. um, trying to outcompete other jurisdictions for for tax subsidies. And then what we tend to see with um, whether it's you know a tax subsidy or cutting a, ch- a check, it's it's essentially the same economically speaking, but. Oftentimes, the the promised jobs don't end up uh, coming to fruition, and the jobs that do, the the cost per job, if you look at, you know, how much the subsidy was per job supposedly created, it's a really, really high number. Um, Just as an example with uh, some research that's been done on tariffs, which is a different policy, but it'll give you a ballpark idea, you know, sometimes it's upwards of $600,000 per job and I'm, I'm using quotation marks around created, um, 
for jobs that pay, you know, maybe $100,000 per job. So that's $500,000 difference there, a loss of efficiency or a loss of money, wasted money, um, trying to distort economic activity and where it happens through really targeted incentives. States and, you know, the federal government as well would be better off looking at just the, the structural elements of their system. Do we have a competitive tax code with respect to our, our neighboring states? Mm. Uh, do we discourage investment just through the structure of our corporate income tax system? Or do we allow that full expensing that I mentioned? Looking at that baseline treatment of how businesses can invest and create jobs in your state before you even move into the realm of now should we offer subsidies, um, the, the conversations are, are sometimes not happening on that first point when, when they should be happening there first. Yeah, uh, we got a message from Michael on Twitter that says the federal tax code incentives seem to directly encourage investment in capital. Is it fair to say there aren't many targeted incentives for employing people that work? Seems like companies prefer to outsource and not have employees. That's a great question. I present that to you, Erica. What response do you have? Well, when we're looking at you know business expenses, if a business pays its employee wages, salaries, health insurance, other fringe benefits, it, it gets to deduct those immediately. Um, so there is no bias against hiring labor. Now, if a business decides to, you know, like I mentioned earlier, buy a new truck or buy a new machinery or build a new factory, it depends if it gets that deduction. If it's some stuff, it, it does get to deduct it almost immediately, but that, that has been phasing out. Um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 implemented 100% bonus depreciation, which said for a short-lived asset, um, think you know machinery, equipment, some computer software, for the next period of time, you, you can deduct that fully, but that's phasing out now. If it's a longer-lived asset, um, think like a factory or a warehouse, the business has to deduct that over decades. And that just sounds like accounting speak, but at the end of the day, that, that matters in dollars and cents because as you and I have all been experiencing inflation, we know a dollar today is more valuable than a dollar in the future because inflation erodes the value of that. And so if I as a business have to wait you know, three decades to fully deduct my expenses, I'm not actually deducting those in real terms because inflation is eating away at the value of that deduction I get every day. So the baseline treatment of our tax code is biased against capital investment through that. Now, we do have provisions, I mentioned, like bonus depreciation that alleviate some of that bias and provide more neutral treatment. Um, but then there's also the question of, so if I, if I do encourage capital investment, what does that mean for workers? And there's been some really cool research done um, looking at different episodes of bonus depreciation in the United States, because we've kind of had it on and off again since the early 2000s. And then looking at different states that either adopt that federal provision or don't adopt it and exploiting differences between what happens in those states. And researchers have found through that that the states and the types of investments that qualify for bonus depreciation, we do see an increase in capital investment for those. And along with that, we see an increase in employment too, which tells us that capital and labor are actually complementary. They work together. So if a business is buying new tools or upgrading its software, mm. it's bringing in new employees to work alongside that, to, to use those machines in, in production, to, to use that software. Um, maybe it's training up employees 
So, so we do see a complementary um, relationship between capital and labor in that respect when it, when it comes to the, um, this baseline tax treatment. Yeah, you know, that's interesting hearing you say all of that. I think it makes me think that one of the reasons some people, at least voters, besides the ribbon cutting, can think about direct tax incentives to specific areas, it's once we get into all of this, basically how the money trickles to other areas? I mean, do you have a firm that's efficient in what they're spending in? Are they a good business or are they not? And economists, I think a lot of people will say, well, that'll settle out in the wash. But when you're working on trying to juice your economy immediately, you're like, I don't know if I have as much time to hope that it works its way to where it should efficiently, whereas I want to see how my money is being impacted right now. Case in point, we all remember the different states and locales that were trying to get all of those Amazon warehouses, get Amazon to come to their states. A lot of people made big pitches. And ultimately, it seemed like the, the big winners, quote unquote, were places that we would have expected Amazon to go anyway. Uh, do you have any analysis or is there any analysis of the fallout from those subsidies, that chase to get Amazon or these other big businesses to come to their states, to come to their locales with tax incentives? How has that worked out? Yeah, you, you kind of hinted at it in your question there. Um, a lot of times what we see is that it's not ultimately, you know, changing corporate behavior. Uh, these businesses have an idea of where, where they're going to go. And they're, they're going to try to get as much incentive out of the government that they can. And instead of, you know, governments agreeing, you know, oh, we're not going to do that. It, it ends up into that arms race that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, you, you're sort of at a, a prisoner's dilemma. You know, if, mm-hmm. if one government says, oh, I'm not going to do it, you know, what if, what if they end up cutting a deal over there? Um, we, we would be much better served as taxpayers, as citizens of our communities, if, if they would focus on, like I mentioned earlier, this, like, do we have a structurally competitive environment for all businesses uh, the existing businesses that have been here for decades, or are we making sure that we're treating them well rather than trying to cut sweetheart deals with a new business that, you know, puts existing uh, businesses at a disadvantage as well? And then, like I, I also mentioned, and, and I think we've talked about, um, oftentimes these deals don't actually pan out. The, they're promises made, but not promises kept when it comes to follow through on the number of jobs created, the average wage that the jobs are supposed to have. Um, all those sorts of things typically don't don't end up happening, um, or if they do happen to to some extent, the the cost of making them happen, um, you're you're not coming out ahead with with all of the the tax revenue that has been given up for for that. Very good. Before we let you go, we got time for one question from Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Uh, good morning. Right. So I was um, I'm concerned about the the people that have been failed in rural areas and in urban areas where there's like job deserts and transportation deserts and, you know, there's low paying, not living wage jobs. Is it time for us to start thinking beyond the box of, um, of business solving all the problems and saying, do we need to fund, fund public businesses? Mm. Um, during the pandemic, we didn't have, we didn't, we had a supply chain. We couldn't have masks. Yeah, yeah. Do we need to have businesses that are publicly funded in these areas? 
um, these these places where the people have been failed that will have oh we need um we need affordable toilet paper oh, yeah we yeah. got a factory for that now I understand Melissa I got I'm coming up on the break so I just want to make sure Erica has time to answer your question it does sound a little pick winners and loserish to me but I also understand there's some things especially in a pandemic you got to make sure you have would it make more sense maybe for more public direct funding to make sure we have more control over those funds Erica what's your response to that. I would be worried about similar issues with, you know, tax subsidies that go to specific industries um, similar to it. I think we'd see similar outcomes if the government was just making the investment in specific industries. Um, they I would say I'm, I'm more skeptical of the government knowing where things need to go than, than private individuals working on their own together. Um, that said, I, I do think there's a case, though, you can think of, I'm, I'm going to mention my favorite policy again, bonus depreciation as <laughs> allowing government investment. Yeah. Um, there, there's some cool, you know, um, examples that, that say, you know, if you allow a business to fully deduct that, that's the same from, from the tax perspective as allowing the government to be an investor in, in that business. Right. And so with that policy, you kind of achieve that, but you avoid the whole picking winners and losers. It, it remains neutral. Um, and, and allows businesses to, to fail or flourish uh, without, you know, government putting their thumb on the scale. Well, Erica, the listeners were the number one winner of this bonus depreciation was the number two winner of this conversation. But thank you so <laughs> much, Erica, for joining us on Detroit Today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa and Metro Detroit as well. And when we return on Detroit today, we're going to pivot into what one city in the state is trying to do to help small business with directly funding uh, some people in the world of small business. We'll tell you more about that policy in Ann Arbor when we continue on Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. And we've been talking a lot today about the best way to create good paying jobs in Michigan, which many believe are critical to what we do in terms of having success in our economy. A critical part of that would be small businesses, of course, as they have the power to directly address community needs and bring dollars to expand local economies. But if you've ever had to start a business, You know it's expensive and it's risky. Whether it's doing hair, baking cupcakes, or constructing buildings, money is needed to create products and develop a brand. Unfortunately, money is scarce for many entrepreneurs, especially when they're starting a business. One pilot program in Ann Arbor is seeking to change that. The Ann Arbor City Council recently approved a guaranteed income program for 100 random entrepreneurs with low and moderate incomes, providing them over $500 a month for two years. The program hopes to help recipients create businesses and move up the economic ladder. We have two guests here now to discuss the program. Kristen Seafelt is the Associate Director of the Poverty Solutions Initiative and an Associate professor, professor of Social Work and Public Policy at the University of Michigan. She leads the Guaranteed Income Programs Research Team. Professor Seafelt, welcome to Detroit Today. And we also have with us Lynn Song, an Ann Arbor City Council member who sponsored the Ann Arbor Guaranteed Income Initiative. Council Member Song, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. 
We'll start with you, Councilmember Song, as Ann Arbor is the first city in Michigan to adopt this kind of program. Why did Ann Arbor decide this was a good idea for its city? Well, I've wanted this for Ann Arbor since learning about UBI through Mississippi's Magnolia Mothers Trust and Stockton's work in 2019. Um, I only joined council in 2020, and since then I've done my best to advocate for anti-poverty and justice work. Uh, Ann Arbor is the eighth most segregated community in the country, and with that comes inequities like housing access, and there's actually a nine-year life expectancy difference between Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. So in 2021, when Ann Arbor was awarded $24 million in ARPA funds, uh, that's the American Rescue Plan Act, Act funding. Um, with the leadership of City Hall, we had a series of community engagement sessions. We asked residents how they wanted to commit these dollars, and UBI was one of them um, as it was an option, and it ranked pretty high with residents um, with support from social service agencies, and it aligned with our other ARPA allocations towards homelessness, affordable housing, and funding for social service agencies. So we got behind this idea because we felt like this is how we could best dedicate money that's supposed to be responsive to pandemic relief. We saw our community had been suffering before the pandemic and it was just exacerbated during the pandemic. Um, I'm really excited for this partnership with the University of Michigan to see this through. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really interesting. And I know UBI is something that a lot of us have discussed. Um, in terms of the implementation of this program, uh, can you tell us exactly how it would work? So we dedicated the money last year, had an RFP, and uh, the University of Michigan Poverty Solutions came through uh, and is actually contracted uh, with the city of Ann Arbor to administer the program. So it's really up to Kristen's program and researchers to not only um, allocate the funding to, we're looking at about 500 residents over a two year period, I'm sorry, 100 residents over a two year period at $500 a month um, and having a research study to follow the impact on the community. Yeah, and are there any specific metrics that you're looking for? How will you know whether this was a success or not? I mean, what we are really looking for is to see what kind of um, mental health outcomes, um, how other health outcomes could this money could could alleviate, um, you know, some stress and worries uh, for folks who are facing housing insecurity. We are in a housing crisis in Washington County here. Um, I'd like to see folks be able to uh, avoid eviction. Um, be able to stay in a very expensive city. Our average median income for a four-person household is over 100K at this point. So um, my hope is that we can have more residents be able to stay in Ann Arbor and thrive in Ann Arbor. Yeah, and I think that's a very noble goal, which we would all want. So the question then would be, as I've heard you say a lot about housing insecurity and making sure people are able to take care of their basic needs, to the extent that is the goal of this program, what would you say to someone who might believe this money could have been better spent on other social services, like directly helping people get housing or things more dedicated to some of these issues that you mentioned? So we actually did allocate funding for homelessness, a million for homelessness, uh, 3.5 million towards acquiring more property for affordable housing. I mentioned housing insecurity because as we followed how um, other pandemic related funding was falling off with the eviction moratorium ending, uh, child tax credit ending, additional SNAP benefits ending, we saw how um, that additional assistance could have kept folks uh, 
um, more securely housed. Um, and housing first is a model that Ann Arbor follows and the county also follows with housing. Once you house someone, then can come wraparound services so folks can can seek the additional assistance that they have. But housing is really a primary concern. Um, so we, we did dedicate money for, to actually directly address housing, uh, but there's not enough. <laughs> well, well, no, I understand. I, I know that you did. That's why I was asking about, well, it, housing seems to be the issue. I'm not saying that you didn't dedicate it to it, but I know some would say if we keep hearing this come up, come up, come up, would it be the most efficient way of using funds to help people with housing when, again, this is a limited pilot program. It's only going to be reaching 100 random entrepreneurs and presumably someone who's an entrepreneur, even though you go through a really tough struggle to make that work, that uh, is someone who might not necessarily be in the most dire of circumstances of some there. Maybe the money could be more efficiently spread, which is what's behind that question. Uh, so since I did lay it out that way, I'll just give you a moment to respond before we loop Kristen back in. Sure. Um so I think this is what we were looking for is kind of innovative ways to study what is happening in our community. Uh, we know we are in a housing crisis and we've done things like pass an affordable housing village back in 2020. So our, our city is making investments towards housing, but when it comes to this particular program, um, it's, it's we don't actually provide direct social services programs that's through the county. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good way for us to really understand what are those most pressing needs, what's keeping what are what is actually happening with folks. Right. We know we're hearing from folks who are being priced out, landlords are increasing rents. Um, this will help us prioritize issues with future budget cycles. Yeah. Um, and also look at partnerships with the county, with the state, with the feds when we talk about what can provide the most stability for the folks on the margins. Um, if it's uh, eviction or if it's debt, if it's childcare, transportation, you know, I, I'm really hoping that this research that U of M will, will be bringing to us will show us how uh, the working poor work very, very hard. Right. Um, and what are the options to get them so that they can find more stability, more full-time work, um, and stability for their children. And that's why we have Kristen Seafelt with us here, uh, the Associate Director of the Poverty Solutions Initiative. We've discussed that this will be, besides the direct impact it will have to those uh, 100 or so people uh, to help out in their situation, It'll also be an opportunity to get really good data to find out what's the best way, what's the most efficient way to provide money to people who really need it and with these things. Since you're going to be running the program, um, how do you plan to study this initiative? And let us know, Kristen, what are you tracking? and what will a successful outcome look like for this program? Yeah, sure. So in addition to selecting 100 people to receive the guaranteed income payment, we'll also select another 100 folks from the same pool. Um, they won't receive the payment, although they will um, receive funds for participating in research so that we can compare them over time and be able to really say, if we see differences between the two groups, these differences are really being driven by the guaranteed income. And what we're going to look for um, first and foremost are changes in um, in well-being. You know, are people who are getting guaranteed income experiencing less? Uh, housing instability or other housing problems. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Kristen, yeah. we're going to have to get you back on here to discuss this program a little bit more because it's a little interesting and we're really going to want to know what some of the results from this are. But uh, before I let you go, 
uh, there. Again, as uh, we are speaking about the new program and initiative here, uh, Ann Arbor trying out guaranteed income. Uh, Lynn, is there any discussion, Councilmember Song, about potentially expanding this in the future if you're able to do so? Have you thought about ways of doing this if this is a successful program? I mean, I'd like to see uh, I'd like to see some form of this program continuing uh, with future councils, future uh, partners through philanthropy. Um, you know, hopefully the U of M will come forward. Um, I'm following what's happening in Chicago, LA, Pittsburgh, Denver, yeah. Stockton, Newark. Uh, there are a number of cities who they're all pilot programs, and for the ones that have ended. Um, Private entities have picked up the the tab to continue and provide assistance in some form. Good good but information really think- there. We we are going to have to close it out here right now. I do appreciate a council member song. Sorry for cutting you off there a little bit, but we are running up on the end of the show. I want to thank you, council member song, as well as uh, Kristen Seafelt of the University of Michigan. You are listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll be back tomorrow with Stephen.